A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this third and final episode about the life and times of Rabbi Victor Miller has been generously sponsored by the Miller family in memory of Devorah Basra Yehuda, Mrs. Devorah Miller, who was the daughter-in-law of Rabbi Victor Miller, Zatzal, the wife of Rabbi Miller's son, Rabbi Eliezer Miller Yibadul Chaim. She passed away about a year ago and was a woman who exemplified the ideals, those ideals with her midas and care for others. May her memory be a blessing. Um, it's also very appropriate and seasonal that we're finishing up this series on Erev Pesach. Rabbi Victor Miller's yard site is immediately after Pesach, on Chaf Zion Nisan, the 27th day of Nisan. So this whole Pesach season is right around the time of his passing and his yard site, and it's very uh, apropos that we're, you know, speaking about him and his life and history during this time, getting ready for his yard site. I also find it to be a kind of a funny irony that uh, Ravig de Miller, who was known as this staunch opponent of Zionism and the Jewish state, and he also had some very interesting views about Holocaust and Holocaust memory. He passes away on Chav Zayinis, on Yom HaShoah, in, uh, in Israel, of course. But that's, uh, that's just, you know, funny. Uh, I got getting loads of feedback. Apparently, this is a very popular subject. And I just um, want to read one letter that I got, which I found to be a very compelling story. So I'm going to just share one, and you can... Uh, get an idea of the type of uh, the volume of the feedback I'm getting about Victor Miller. So I'm going to read this letter. Uh, my grandmother was Ruth Medetsky, who you mentioned at the end of part two. My mother told me that this story happened around 1962 or 1963. After hearing Rabbi Miller speak about women covering their hair, she decided to take it on as a schus for a family member who needed serious heart surgery. Rabbi Miller made a big deal about it in shul the next week, and more women... Uh, slowly started to do it as well. My grandfather, Aaron Medetsky, was the son of poor Russian immigrants who needed to pull him out of Tamil at the age of seven since they could not afford tuition. After serving in the U.S. Army during World War II, he became one of the first Shimer Shabbos policemen in the New York City Police Department. Miller and others with government connections were involved in helping him to be allowed to take off for Shabbos. In order to do this, he agreed to work in quite a dangerous part of the city where no one wanted to be stationed. Early on, Miller started to give a Gemara share 
to shul members. It was a typical young Israel crowd, and many people, like my grandfather, had difficulty reading Hebrew. Rabbi Miller had them write the Hebrew with Nikudos on the right side of the page and the translation on the left side. I have a notebook that my grandma, grandfather gave me where he wrote out the entire translation to Maseches Ksubis. He had similar notebooks for Shabbos and Gittin. Some of these were written during the summer vacation when, as encouraged by Rabbi Miller, he, he would review recordings he had made of the classes. When they finished the first parak of Gemara, all the wives were invited and given a single red rose. These were young Israel women who did not grow up with the concept of learning Sdarim, and Rabbi Miller recognized that it was a genuine sacrifice on their part to give up their husbands on weekends and evenings, and he wanted to show his appreciation. Things progressed so that there were multiple shiurim each week, then each day, and eventually for most of the day and again at night. The shiurim were called classes. Most of them were Gemara, but I remember announcements for Chavis Alavavis and Mesil Sisharim as well. In the late 60s, my grandfather retired and was going to shiurim at the shul for the entire day. I remember visiting my grandparents in the 80s and 90s, and coming into the shul for Mincha and Meir before the class ended. Rabbi Miller would read a few lines of Gemara and explain them, and then everybody would go over them with their chavruses. In this way, someone who could barely read Hebrew in his mid-40s eventually went through Shas multiple times and was able to speak to us about any Gemara throughout Shas. It made a big impression on me that one time I was visiting for a frigid Shabbos in January and relaxing on Friday night reading a book. At 10 p.m., my grandfather, who was already in his 80s, came back home, from Rabbi Miller's Friday night review class, Rabbi Miller was, was at that time in his late 80s, while I, in my early 20s, was lying, lying around reading my book. Rabbi Miller would not miss these classes for anything. My parents got married in 1975 at a wedding hall a few blocks away from the shul. Despite his closeness to my grandparents, he did not come because he would have to have miss a class, which he would not do. On Yom Tif, when we would visit, there would be tzedakah appeals, but they would not be for the shul. They were for the Beis Yisrael Yeshiva, run by his son, Reb Shmuel Miller, and for the Peekskill Yeshiva. My father told me that membership was $25 in the 1980s, and it was all he could do to hold back laughing when the president got up and apologetically announced that they had to raise membership to $36. I have no idea how the shul ran on that kind of budget. Amazing, amazing stories and recollections. Really brings it alive. By the way, before I continue with Victor Miller, so the mega edition of Mishpacha magazine came out for Pesach, and Davi Safir and I wrote two pieces in it this week, this time. Um, one is a long feature article on the profiling, the altar of Slabatka, Reb Finkel, and his legacy and accomplishments, which is kind of actually related somewhat to the subject of this episode, because he was a student, uh, Reb Vigdemel was a student of Slabatka, albeit after the altar had already passed away. And the second um, one we have is an extended for the record column in this week's uh, mega edition of Mishpacha magazine for Pesach, and it's all about uh, Simcha announcements in newspapers, uh, historic uh, figures and historic newspapers and the announcements of their weddings or a birth of a child, which uh, should be an interesting and diverse uh, uh, sprinkling of different uh, figures throughout the 20th century. So I hope you enjoy both of those. Make sure to check them out and read them over Yantif, and I'm sure that uh, you'll enjoy them. Uh, this part three of Ravigda Miller is going to be about his career as a congregational rabbi and also we'll touch on his books and his classes for the general public and his later years and his uh, public policy uh, uh, um, affairs as well. So I want to acknowledge, first of all, the book once again. Um, this, uh, you know, the book, again, served as the prime uh, source for the material. Yaakov Hamburger's book, uh, Ravigda Miller, His Life and His Revolution. And we start with his being a congregational rabbi in East Flatbush, 
And later on, they uh, moved to Flatbush or another part of Brooklyn, which, you know, many, many residents of the neighborhood refer to as Flatbush. I believe it's Midwood, but let's not get into uh, Brooklyn neighborhoods, which is a big uh, story for itself. So the Jewish neighborhood in East Flatbush, it's actually a distinct part of East Flatbush called Rugby, the East Flatbush which is itself a neighborhood in Brooklyn, so it's divided into a few sub-neighborhoods, two or three sub-neighborhoods, and rugby is one of those neighborhoods. So it's another one of the many immigrant urban Brooklyn neighborhoods which grew in the early decades of the 20th century. It was mainly Irish and Italian in those days, and it had a very uh, a Jewish uh, feel as well. Um, and 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 the there was a young Israel in the neighborhood, and young Israel in general, and it's is is a major force in Jewish life at this time in orthodoxy, in preserving orthodoxy, in saving uh, um, United States orthodoxy, especially around New York City uh, at the early decades of the 20th century. Um, the history of Israel is fascinating. And uh, in post-war Jewish life as well, preserving traditional Judaism. So Rabbi Vigda Miller very much acknowledged the role of young Israel and he came to um, emerge as the rabbi of the young Israel of rugby. Now he viewed his role as rabbi as one of leadership, as one of teaching Torah, as one of engendering spiritual growth. Um, but many of the traditional rabbi roles he simply did not believe were important. So he saw a very his, he saw his role as a rabbi as quite distinct, and I'm going to elaborate on how that uh, developed and and played out in his career there. So let's proceed chronologically and give it a you know a sense of of, of the, the the setting that he's in. So one setting is this rugby East Flappish neighborhood. The other setting is the Young Israel movement, and he settles with his family in rugby East Flappish. Uh, in 1945, so there's already several shuls. He personally davened in the Lubavitcher Stiebel. The Young Israel of Rugby had been around almost since the founding of Young Israel. Young Israel was founded in 1913, and five years later, the Young Israel of Rugby uh, was started. So it's around from almost the beginning. And uh, Rabbi Miller uh, soon joined the Young Israel as a regular member. Uh, he wasn't uh, initially the rabbi. He soon volunteered to deliver a weekly Mishnayis class, and he delivered a Gemara class to a group of older men in another, another shul in the neighborhood, and that was the East 53rd Street Shul. That was officially called the Rameir Simcha HaKayin Shul. It was actually quite a famous shul. It was one of the largest ones in the neighborhood. And uh, its rabbi, for many, many years, was a renowned Lubavitcher Chassid, an activist, a leader, a tremendous person, a great, great story also, Rabbi J.J. Hecht. He was the rabbi there for over 40 years. Another uh, personality who was associated with the shul was that's where Cantor David Werdiger was the chazan for many years. So it has it had some uh, quite uh, some uh, interesting personalities associated with this shul. So he, Rabbi, Rabbi Miller also gave a Gemara class there. So after a few months he began delivering a weekly talk from the pulpit on Shabbos at the Young Israel of Rugby and then also a Gemara Shir on Shabbos morning. Then finally, this is all unofficial. In 1947, a contract was signed and he was officially installed as the rabbi of this shul. This was a very orthodox congregation of mostly committed Jews, and yet it was reflective of the prevailing culture of American 1940s uh, orthodoxies. There was a 
combination of widespread ignorance and even laxity of Jewish observance, even among those who are religiously, officially religiously observant, who is mainly due to ignorance um, and lack of Jewish education on the part of the members who are, for the most part, were very committed Jews. Um, so his activities were primarily in attempting and ultimately succeeded in challenging the status quo uh, to be seen and and and. And to, to see his activities is, to, is, is both a prism into the general story of New York urban orthodoxy at this time, as well as specifically his pioneering efforts in many regards to what has ultimately become accepted standards and today somewhat taken for granted. And therefore, it's important to emphasize how he was a pioneer and these things that are to, that are taken for granted in, in New York Orthodoxy today um, is, uh, you know, he was very much uh, a trailblazer in that regard in many, in many, uh, in many, uh, in many regards, actually. He first tackled the most simple, at the most simple level, mitzvah observance from a traditional Orthodox perspective. The first thing he did was no more mixed dancing at shul fun functions, which was, incredibly enough, was still a novelty for an Orthodox synagogue in the 1940s. It was actually quite common for there to be mixed dancing. So he also, they called it social dancing. They didn't call it mixed dancing, God forbid. He also informed his congregation that it was forbidden to shave with a razor, as this also was not known. And he literally gave them a lesson. He taught them how to shave with shaving cream. You know, it's a, he was always the down to earth and the practical rabbi and the patient teacher. That's what I, like I mentioned in part two, I find so fascinating. He taught the more intricate and less well-known laws of Shabbos. He encouraged his congregants to patronize specific butchers and bakeries, which he had verified for their uh, kashrus level. He also encouraged them to have their clothing checked by Mr. Joseph Rosenberger in Williamsburg for shotness, which at the time was a completely neglected mitzvah and hardly observed. The same thing with the long and patient campaign to encourage women to cover their hair, which was very uncommon in those days. The same thing with building a sukkah and purchasing dalad minim. He spoke about um, having kosher tefillin and mezuzahs. He made a field trip with the shul to the beach to teach them about tevilas kalim. Uh, in those early days, the only English religious monthly publication was a kahat uh, publication of Chabad Lubavitch. Remember, in the 1940s, the Rebbe the Rayats was still alive at this time, and it was the Kahat publication was run by his son-in-law, the future Rebbe, and, uh, and, and Kahat publications published an English pamphlet called Talks and Tales, which was pretty much the only Torah uh, English publication in existence in the United States at the time, and Rabbi Victor Miller would pay for people's subscriptions. He encouraged people to subscribe to it because he felt that, that this was the only reading material that they could have, a Torah reading material in the English language. Later on, in, I believe in the late 50s or early 60s maybe, when uh, the Jewish press was started, he would encourage uh, the same. He would encourage people to sus subscribe as what he saw as the first Orthodox uh, English weekly, the Jewish press. With his primary goal to increase Torah study and to motivate growth in Torah knowledge and in Jewish observance, he also pioneered Torah classes for women, which was unheard of at the time. He, he pioneered individual study at any level. In other words, he volunteered to study with individual congregants at any level, including, in certain instances, teaching them Aleph Bays, classes for older members, classes for younger members, students, um, Shiurim on legal holidays, Sundays, every evening, increasing over time. He convinced members to send their children to stop sending them to public school, to send them to yeshivas or Bisyakov. 
Again, this is all taking place in the 1940s and 50s, and this is quite radical. The demographics of East Flatbush were changing in the late 60s and early 70s. The neighborhood, as did most Brooklyn neighborhoods, experienced at that time, some even started in the 50s, experienced a white flight. Um, and he tried to stay. He uh, he wanted. He believed that it was important to stay. They had a cohesive, uh, you know, a good, a good, you know, good uh, community-oriented uh, congregation at this point. But it simply wasn't working. So in the early seventies, he was confronted with what his next step would be. So he did something which was quite unprecedented. He decided to move as a community to Flatbush. He encouraged all his members to buy homes in the same area in Flatbush, and he would open a shul there, which would be kind of somewhat a continuation of the Young Israel of Rugby, but now would be not Young Israel or affiliated with the National Young Israel at all. It would be the Basis Yisrael of Rugby Torah Center, and it would be Rabbi Miller's shul. It would be entirely and completely his, his place, and it would be his presence and aura which would permeate it for decades to come. So in 1975, he moves to Flatbush and opened the new shul, and over the next year, most of the congregation followed, and he basically had his own community. And he achieved the impossible. He had transferred the bulk of an urban community to another urban neighborhood. As far as I know, and I'd be happy to know if there were other instances such as this in Jewish history, but as far as I know, this has never been done before or since anywhere at any time in the United States, Israel, or pre-war Europe. So far as history concerned, he he made history. It seems to be a one-time occurrence. Um, so that's a pretty uh, pretty impressive feat. So he, uh, because it was now his own shul, he was able to implement his own customs. Uh, for example, he insisted on no chazanus, which he already started before in the young Israel, no schlepping by davening. Uh, people have schedules, people have work, he didn't want anyone, it's a burden on the congregation and their valuable time, no schlepping by davening. So I would have liked that in his shul. Um, he, one time his son-in-law davened in the shul, and afterwards Rabbi Miller approached his son-in-law and told him, I'm quoting, exact quote from the book, You daven very well, but many people here need to go out to work. Your davening takes two minutes longer than ordinary, and you need to be careful about those two minutes. Incredible. So he filled, he filled also the traditional role as rabbi in regards to psak, rendering halachic decisions, and he would even sit on a bezdin, a rabbinical court, whenever necessary, but he was far from traditional in many other ways. He did not officiate at funerals, of course, he was a kayan, but also rarely so at weddings. He barely even attended simchas or social functions, though he did celebrate with his congregants on every Jewish holiday. There was like a masiba, a gathering, and an annual shul dinner with music and dancing and all kinds of things like that. But he saw his main calling as one to teach Torah, to engender growth, to motivate his congregants to aspire to spiritual growth and spiritual heights, and to teach them Torah. So apropos for Pesach, he would sell the chametz on behalf of the community, but he would not take any compensation. He would not take any money for it, unlike the accepted rabbinical custom. But because of that custom that he had, which was his personal custom, he was concerned that people would come to him to save money, because he would they wouldn't have to pay their other rabbi. And it would cause other rabbis to lose out on their livelihoods. So he would not sell anyone's chametz if they were not from his own communities, because he did not want it to have a detrimental effect on other rabbis in the neighborhood. So his care and concern were for others out there as well. So he had this vision as his primary uh, role in life, uh, like I mentioned, was to teach Torah, but it was specifically a certain type of Torah, that was Gemara. And it was quite unique, 
and novel for the time. This is the 1950s. Now, the coming story is so astounding and is unlike any story I've ever read about any rabbi that I can modestly, and I can modestly assert that I've read quite a few stories about rabbis. So it is so different and unique that after reading it a couple of times in the book, I find it to be still an astounding story. So to me, it illustrates the essence of the Rabbi Miller story. It puts him kind of in a unique category of his own and definitively places him as an independent thinking and in many ways not very traditional rabbi in his methods, even though he claimed to be continuing everything from Slabatka, but no one in Slabatka did this either. Um, he, was, he, was, he knew what he had to do at that time, and to fully grasp the story, I elect to proceed to actually read this passage directly from the book. So I'm going to read from page 395 in the book of Ravig de Miller, and this is the story. Um, one Shabbos in 1966, during his drasha before Musa, Rabbi Miller int- introduced a groundbreaking proposal. I have an announcement to make, he declared, but it is intended only for those without a background in Gemara. If you are not a beginner, this announcement is not for you. He then told the congregation that starting that week, he was offering a new shear, a beginner's Gemara shear. Anyone interested in attending should come on Wednesday night and make sure to bring, bring along a pencil and notebook. To his great surprise, that Wednesday night, 13 people showed up. He began, he began with the first parak of Baba Metzia and instructed these grown men to copy over the first mission of Shnaim Eichzen in their notebooks, word for word. Each line was to contain only a few words. That was it for the first week. The next week, it was time for these aspiring Talmud scholars to insert the Nakudos into the words inscribed in their notebooks from the previous week's session. Rabbi Miller read the Mishnah for them one word at a time to demonstrate how each one sounded, and the attendees had to fill in the Nakudos, vowelizing the Mishnah's words. At the Shear's conclusion, Rabbi Miller listened to them read over the Mishnah, making sure their pronunciations were correct. He then gave them their first homework assignment. During the week, they were to practice over and over their reading of the Mishnah until the words flowed from their lips. His goal was to improve their reading to the point that that they would sound as if they had attended Yeshiva for many years. It should become as familiar to you as Ashrei, he told them. Having achieved the comfort level with reading the words, the next step was translation and comprehension, and it now began in earnest. At the third session, Rabbi Miller instructed the attendees to record the translation of the words, which was to be written on the same line as the corresponding Hebrew words on the opposite page. And so he proceeded with great precision to translate every word. The students did not view this as tedious. They were awed by the care and deference Rabbi Miller accorded each word. As he provided translations, it was apparent that each term was precious to him, as if he were dealing with pearls instead of vocabulary. He translated each word with exactitude and insisted that his students likewise translate all the words properly. While understanding the words is an important prerequisite to gaining a proper understanding of Talmudic material, it is insufficient in and of itself. One needs to focus on the Gemara's intent and deduce from the text the ideas and laws that it seeks to convey. To that end, the following week, Rabbi Miller presented the explanation of each section of the Gemara. He instructed the attendees to record these explanatory comments in their notebooks as well. As in the previous sessions, Rabbi Miller told them to write first to first write the words of a section and then insert Nakudus. He then helped them become fluent in reading and explaining it. He constantly stressed how important it was to pay attention to acquire the idiom of the Gemara, the unique style of questions, answers, and proofs of the Gemara. He required each attendee to commit to 15 minutes of review each day. Don't overload and review an hour one day and forget the rest of the week, he would say. Every day you must invest 15 minutes. Nevertheless, there were those who were so enthusiastic that they spent hours every day reviewing over and over what they had learned. So it proceeded week by week, covering a few more lines 
And then a few more. Writing, translating, reviewing, familiarizing, practicing, understanding. The sessions continued in this way until they finally completely completed and mastered an entire daf. By the first year's end, the Shira participants, which had begun with no Gemara experience, had completed and mastered three dafim. Rabbi Miller arranged a celebratory meal, renting a ballroom. He made sure to invite the participants' wives so they would take pride so they could take pride in their husband's accomplishments. He handed a rose to each wife in appreciation of their sacrifice in allowing their husbands to devote their evenings to learning. This also created a healthy jealousy among the women whose husbands had not yet committed to the program. He constantly urged the congregants to attend the shiurim. Even if you work a full day and find it hard to stay awake, come anyway, he told them. You will gain immeasurably. The main thing is the consistency of coming. That's the end of the passage that I chose to read. It's amazing. I think it speaks for itself. After many years, this group finished Shas. He delivered countless other shiurim at all levels and many other books and topics aside from Gemara. Tens of classes a week. He never went on vacation. He rarely attended any events, the public events, dinners, simchas, he almost never left Brooklyn altogether. He was completely dedicated to his goal of teaching Torah and almost never missed. missed. Um, he became quite a public personality in his later years. He, um, His Thursday night sheer became very popular. Um, he Thursday night classes, he would, you know, it would be, he encouraged them to bring tape recorders and uh, the, the cassettes, the dissemination of the tape recorders and his, his cassette tapes and the exponential growth of his impact and reach as a result, because it wasn't just people attending his classes, but these tapes were disseminated all over the city, the country, and eventually the world. So he was kind of revolutionary in utilizing the tape cassette technology, um, and it was a pioneer in that regard in disseminating his classes in that fashion. Um, and then, of course, the major role in the Thursday night classes and in the tape recording and 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 distribution was, we have to recognize the historic role of the Syrian Jewish community in Flatbush in that regard, because they were the ones who got him to, who invited him, and eventually were the main ones who organized and, and hosted in the early years and recorded the uh, the uh, Thursday night classes and, and and the use of the tape recorders and, and the cassette tapes. So that was, uh, that's, that's, that's a, you know, that was historic as well. Now, he began to write books as well. In 1962, he wrote Rejoice, O Youth, which was self-published, as were all his subsequent uh, books. And the effect of the publication of the book was that, essentially, this put him on the map as a public figure. Um, and the result was an increase in his popularity and membership and attendance of his classes and making his mark on the wider world. And he saw that this... Uh, this you know increased his reach and impact, and he decides to continue writing books um, as a result. It was kind of historic, this 1962 publication, because there were almost no Torah books in English of that sort. Um, in fact, if you, there weren't that many books in Hebrew of that sort either, for that matter, but, uh, but, but specifically in English, 1962, there was not, not that kind of material was being published, and most of his books were published in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, where the, the the genre of English Torah books had not yet really developed. So he really preceded that whole era, and uh, and uh, and and in, in as far as writing and publishing uh, those books. And it was he had several ones on what he called Hashkafa of Jewish outlook, um, several history books. His history books ended um, in. Uh, 
in the 4th or 5th century, at the end of the time period of Chazal, of when the Talmud was was uh, written down, uh, and uh, therefore it's, it's, it's much more of an early history, doesn't really cover the late history, um, uh, but, but it was history books. He wrote on prayer, he wrote on Chumash, um, and, uh, and he used the platform of his books and public lectures, such as his Thursday night lectures, to discuss different topics that he felt were important, such as evolution, and how he felt uh, that evolution was incompatible with his traditional Torah worldview. He also um, used it to emphasize what he felt was the main lesson of, of life in Judaism, which he imparted throughout his life about recognizing Hashem in the world through his creation, describing the wonders of the natural world, science, air, water, fruit, uh, the human body, all what he felt was the wonders of the world, wonders of the natural world, and how it all pointed to the wonders of Hashem and how it should generate a sense of love and gratitude to him. And he saw the Chayvis Halavavis as his favorite book, and specifically the Shar HaBechina of the Shulchai Salavavis, and he used uh, his, these platforms to expound and expand on that message. He took stands on many public policy issues, and different politics, and when same-gender marriage came up as an issue, and he was very opposed to it, and he encouraged letter-writing campaigns, um, and contacting congressmen, and, uh, and, and city councilmen, and and he was very he encouraged people to be very active politically for moral issues and what he saw as uh, certain challenges to be confronted with liberal ideals. And he encouraged voting and patriotism. He would fly the American flag from the shul on July 4th. He also had a somewhat anti-Zionist stance on many issues. He had some interesting views on the Holocaust. And he would be very... Uh, um, proud of, of uh, and whenever he felt it was necessary to uh, publicly announce his views on things, whether he whether it was accepted by the popular audience or not, whether he felt it was it was he felt what he felt was important to be said, what he felt was in his view the truth, he would go ahead and express as such. So I want to end off just the last couple of minutes with some more stories from the notes that I have from the anonymous congregant that I read from in part two. And he said, sent me so many stuff. I just Some of them were great stories. I want to share them as well, and we'll end off with that. It's just a few excerpts, and I want to take this opportunity once again to thank this individual who wishes to remain anonymous, who so graciously shared his recollections, stories, anecdotes, tidbits, and experience experiences. He clearly was very close to the Rivik de Miller and he shared some great stories. And I'm going to quote a few excerpts from the stories that he shared. One Shavuos night, the Rav made clear that the youngsters were not permitted to run around in front of the shul making a ruckus so as not to disturb sleeping neighbors. The Rav was insistent that if you were not in Kolel, you needed to have a job and work. Now the Rav's practice was to take a lengthy walk daily around the neighborhood for exercise. Of course, I'm certain he also utilized the time for his personal thinking and review. Occasionally I would have a day off from work due to a legal holiday. If on such a day I would happen to be in the street, it so happened more than once that I saw the Rav coming from the opposite direction. Not aware of some minor holiday, he would call me on the carpet. Why aren't you at work? Fortunately, I had a good excuse. Not everyone was able to toe the line. I recall some older children of a congregant who had gotten in the habit of being a bit disruptive. After surveying this for a few years, it seems that the Rav took action, as one Shabbos the two of them were no longer in shul. I surmised the Rav had asked them to find somewhere else to daven. Along the same lines, there was a man who came, who began coming for a month or so and became a regular, always around the shul studying Torah. 
On Simcha's Torah, some young child had come to shul with an Israeli flag. Now the rabbi was known for his opposition to Zionism. This gentleman, directly in front of the rabbi, relieved the child of the flag and pointedly sent it flying out the open window. Open window. He thought he had earned the Rav's favor. The next day, this man was no longer around. I heard that he had been asked to leave because he was fomenting machlokas. The Rav would, of course, determine what time to blow the shoifer at the end of Yom Kippur. He did not want it extended any later than necessary, as obviously people were fasting and it would be difficult upon some. One year, the chazan was running a bit late. It seems that the Rav directed the chazan to skip the final Avinu Malkenu of Ne'ila and go straight to Shema so we would end on time. I was flabbergasted. Um, ours was a small shul, and particularly it was quite narrow. The shul, excuse me, the shulchan was, the, the bima was only a foot away from the wall on one side and rows of benches nearby on the opposite side. This created a problem on Hishana Rabu when we need to make many circuits and there was very little place to walk. One year it was so crowded that as the Rav led the procession, people were getting crushed trying to get around. The second circuit proceeded the same way and it was impassable. People just could not get through. The Rav made a decision. He went back to his seat and read the Hishanis from there, and most followed suit, with just a few continuing the procession. However, after the whole davening was over and people had left, the rabbi went back to the bima and made five more circuits with his lulav and esrik to fulfill the custom. So that was uh, just, again, a few more stories about uh, Ravigda Miller, and we'll end off with that. And um, thus ends our three-part series about the life and times of Ravigda Miller. And this is Yehuda Geber of the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.